some people that I interact with, um, when, when they're kind of going through this whole process are so vigilant, it's pretty amazing, pretty impressive. Um, they track their, their beliefs in real time as the thoughts arise and the beliefs and the, um, the, the tendency to, to formulate an identity around that belief and inquire into the implications of each belief and so forth. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's impressive. It's, it's hard to do. It's hard to be that vigilant and you certainly can't do it all. No one can do that all the time, of course. Um, but it's also not the only way to wake up for sure. It's one way and it's a good way, but it's not the only way and it's not necessarily the best way. But if you are inclined in that way, maybe you have an analytical mind or for whatever reason, you just resonate with that kind of approach of noticing beliefs in real time as they arise, or maybe not as they arise, but as you find yourself going down a thought road and then you stop for a minute and you ask yourself, what, what am I believing about this situation or this moment or myself or life that's causing me to get entangled in this belief, this thought, um, this train of thought, this way of seeing the world or this view, stop for a minute and ask. You may not always find it right away. It may not always become obvious immediately, but the act of asking, the act of stopping is valuable either way. It's very valuable. I think at some point, no matter how people are inclined to wake up initially, at some point this comes into play. Um, and if it never does, you're probably overlooking something. Like if you're never inclined to inquire at all into your thoughts, your beliefs, your preconceptions. Um, there's probably some degree of bypassing going on, but as I said, it's not the only way to approach this certainly. Uh, and yet at some point it becomes important to look into these beliefs, these assumptions, preconceptions, because if you don't, the momentum of the mind is strong and it gets very subtle. So these beliefs become more and more subtle. And even though they're subtle, they're still defining of your experience. They're still defining perception, um, creating a sense of me, uh, as the view of the world and the world as the object of the sense of me <clears throat> and everything in that, uh, paradigm is somewhat distorted because it's made out of thought. It's made out of perception. So at some point it, it does become important to, to question beliefs in my opinion, in my experience at some level, there are a lot of ways to do it. Of course, um, there's relational work. You can work with somebody, um, somebody who has walked this path before you, a non-dual facilitator that you trust, that you resonate with, that feels very clear to you. Um, they're going to be a really good asset for this type of work. But you certainly can do it on your own. You can do it through writing. You can write out, you know, in real time, noticing thoughts arise, noticing beliefs arise, write it out. Or <clears throat> if there's a trope to a certain way you've been perceiving the world or, or even a, a situation, a certain situation with maybe a certain person or your job that's just ongoing, feels sticky, feels repetitive, feels unclear. If any of that's there, that's a really good area to 
look into, to inquire into. Sometimes just writing it out can be helpful. Write it out in long form. Um, get your perceptions and thoughts clarified through, through writing and language, and then step back from it or even set it aside for a day or two and come back and look at it again with fresh eyes and see what are the underlying beliefs? What are the underlying perceptions that are um, illustrated by this that I wrote? Talking to a good friend who's non-judgmental and objective, who's not going to allow you to get them into complicity, but can actually hear what you're saying and point out things that may feel um, unclear. Uh, doing the same thing with someone like that can be really helpful as well. If it's something you're disinclined to talk about or kind of thing you tend to bottle up, whatever it is, talking to somebody that you trust can be really helpful. And defining the parameters of that conversation ahead of time is helpful as well. Just ask them, can you be an objective, you know, mirror to what, what I want to try to process and help me see it more clearly? Um, that can be really valuable. So all of these ways of looking into our beliefs are, are valuable. Uh, and if you can, if you have a bit of a gap there and you can sort of remain present enough to notice any thought arising or notice when you've sort of been caught up in thoughts for a, a moment or longer than a moment and actually ask, okay, well, what is the belief surrounding this line of thought, this train of thought? What is the belief I have about? And if it's not clear that it's a thought you have a belief about, ask yourself, well, what is my belief about the person I'm thinking about? What is my belief about the situation I'm thinking about? What is my belief about the institution I'm thinking about? My job or an event or the past, something that happened in the past, whatever you're ruminating on, ask yourself, what is, what is the belief about this? You can also ask, um, what are my beliefs about this uh, such that I keep returning to it? What do I believe about this as far as why I need to keep thinking about it or ruminating on it? That can reveal something as well. You can also ask, what is it I'm just not seeing about this? What is it I'm not seeing about this situation? Or what is it I don't want to see about this situation? Either one of those can be valuable. And anytime we ask these types of questions, it's helpful to just give it some time. Meaning don't demand an in instantaneous answer necessarily. Sometimes it will come, sometimes it will be obvious, but many times it's not super clear what is actually going on. The experience or situation can still feel opaque even as we, as we ask the question or after we ask the question, but it's still valuable to ask and it's still valuable to let the, let the question drop in to our psyche to our unconscious, whatever, subconscious. Maybe ask as, as, as you're going off to sleep. Sometimes these answers come in sleep, in dream, or as we wake up. Um, so try different things and be patient. But uh, one takeaway I want to give you is just know that it's often not, doesn't feel super satisfying in the moment. I mean, it might feel satisfying in the sense that you feel like you're giving yourself something to do, like you have something to take action on, but that will only last so long. And at some point it can feel like I'm inquiring, but I'm not really getting the answer. I'm, I'm inquiring, but nothing's really shifting or changing. Oh, okay. So now I have an expectation that inquiring right now is supposed to cause something to happen right now. 
I have a belief that I need to change my experience or change my mood or something. Uh, seeing that can be helpful in getting it out of the way. And then ask yourself, is there still something to, to look into here? And if there is, that's great. You'll often see it with more clarity and the inquiry will be more precise, um, perhaps more fruitful. But it's, again, not always in that exact moment. You won't necessarily notice something feel different or shifted or opened or suddenly wake up or something. Now, any of those things can happen and they do on occasion. You just can't force it and you can't predict it. So that's not the goal. The goal is simply seeing clearly that that is the goal. <clears throat> um, inquiry is something, of course, I've talked about a lot. Many people talk about inquiry. I've written about it. You've probably, everyone here has, well, at least a lot of people here, I'm sure have read my chapter on it. Um, but it's, it's a good thing to put fresh eyes onto periodically um, because we sometimes forget the value of it or we just don't do it, <laughs> uh, put it aside. Um, so I wanted to reinvestigate a little bit about how, how the process works. And as I mentioned, there's a lot of ways of going about it. You can do it relationally. You can do it by yourself. You can do it in your mind or, you know, quietly out loud. You can do it through writing. All of those are valuable. If the way you've been doing inquiry doesn't feel like it's going anywhere at all, um, uh, feels stuck and hasn't seemed to, um, change anything over, over a period of time, try something different. I would suggest try something that feels less like what you're inclined to do maybe. So maybe try writing it if you never have, or try working with somebody. If you never have try something different, these are often the areas in which I'll talk to somebody and they feel really stuck and maybe have been stuck for a long time. And then I'll say, have you ever worked one-on-one -on -one with somebody? And they say, oh no, I'd, I feel like I want to do it myself or some, whatever it is, whatever the reason is. And often that's the thing that makes a big difference really is, is putting yourself in a situation that you're not necessarily inclined to put yourself in because there are often hidden reasons you're not inclined to do that. And they can be summarized as a sort of fear and that's okay. It happens. Everybody has some fear or trepidation when working one-on-one -on -one with somebody who's, who's clear because you kind of part of you knows you're going to see things you may not want to see, or you're going to, um, not necessarily be in control of how your perception shifts. And you may look forward to that the first time. And then after you experience it a few times, you may start to feel like some hesitation and like, Hmm, maybe I'm not looking forward so much to doing this, but it can be very valuable. So ex again, exposing yourself to somebody who can be a very clear reflection for you can be very valuable. So. If any of these things are, are areas you haven't tried and you feel stuck, try it, try something different, you know, mix it up a little bit, think outside the box. I want to talk about inquiry into thought and belief specifically here. There are different ways of talking about inquiry. Of course, um, we can talk about inquiry into emotion, inquiry into direct directly into identity, like self inquiry as an approach to awakening, things like that. There are a lot of overlaps, of course. Um, but specifically, I want to talk about awakening. Um, excuse me. I want to talk about inquiry into uh, thought, inquiry into belief, and kind of do it in real time here. Now, also, I want to say that 
most people that I that I interact with that start to feel seasoned with inquiry, like it's really fruitful, it's starting to really work for them, or it's you know causing shifts or however you want to say it. Um, usually, what I find is they've found their own like nuance to it. They've kind of found their own way to do it, which may sound similar to to what I would describe or what someone else would describe. But it, if I talk to them, I can see like they found the right um, formula for themselves. They found the right balance of curiosity and analysis and surrender or what, whatever you want to say. So just know that you may have to also work with this and notice some organic um, sort of evolution of the process. And that's totally normal. Uh, yeah, trust yourself to, to sort of develop what works for you. And it may not be, um, may not hit all of the, the boxes that I describe as what I consider important for inquiry. They don't have, it doesn't have to. I'm just kind of giving you my own experience and my experience of working with others and kind of summating it and then giving specific examples of what I've seen, but it's going to be a little different for everyone. So try these things out, try different things, but trust yourself, trust your own intuition that, oh yeah, something's moving here. Something feels like it's opening as I ask a question the right way or, or I ask it in a certain space or, um, or a certain time of day or a certain posture or whatever, whatever it is, you know, sometimes it's when you're going off to sleep. Sometimes it's when you're feeling, um, at, at peace with, with your environment, with nature, and you just stop and ask a question. Other times it's during meditation. So find, find what works for you. Just play with it a little bit. When we talk about thought, it's, it's a very interesting, um, area to talk about because there's a spectrum of how identified we can be with thought. And on one end of the spectrum is what I kind of just generally term like thought identification or mind identification, where our identity is, is really tied up in thought and belief and time past and future. Uh, meaning that <laughs> there's no real thing called an identity that's like stuck to that exactly. But there's a, a strong visceral attachment to that storyline, to that narrative of me, my problems, my solutions, the people I'm close to, my past, um, my what I want, where I think I'm going. There's a strong visceral actual reaction to the thoughts about that, to the beliefs about that. That's rather binding such that it actually starts to feel like its own thing, like its own entity, like it has its own life. Um, and that life form, seeming life form feels in to some degree rather separate from, from the physical environment, even the body. That's what I mean by mind identification, or that's the, the sort of near end of the spectrum or where we often find ourselves when we're suffering, uh, as an adult or young adult, or even an older child, we, we find ourselves suffering with this affliction of thought. It feels like it's binding us somehow. It's, con it's, it's enclosing us. Um, and, and even the, 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 the one that feels enclosed is sort of intertwined or enmeshed with thought. It's just very uncomfortable it was for me. <laughs> and I think it is for many people. Um, so on that end of the spectrum, 
we're, we're often so identified with thought, even when we notice that those are sometimes moments of clarity, but other times we're so identified with thought that we don't even recognize a thought as such. We don't recognize a thought as a thought. This I think is far more common than most people realize. And this is just something I picked up from talking to many, many people. Um, but there are people, I've met many people who think they don't have thoughts. Let's just say, I don't have thoughts really. <laughs> but I talk to them and it's like obvious that they do have thoughts and they're very identified with them. Um, I heard a quote from someone that uh, Sam Harris said, uh, ego is what it feels like to be thinking and not know you're thinking. That's pretty good. That's pretty accurate. So to be completely enmeshed in and intertwined with thoughts such that I am the thoughts, um, I am the me that the thoughts seem to uh, define. I am the one moving from a past through the present into the future. I am the one in relation to those other people. All of that being made out of thought. But if we're very identified with it, then there's no there's not even a questioning. There's not there's no room for inquiry. There's no impetus for inquiry. There's simply identification. And then it's you know, this is where I think, you know, Buddhism makes a pretty pretty direct statement about what the implications of that are. And the implications are then we are really at the mercy of conditions. Uh, as to whether we are going to cause harm or not, whether we're going to act selfishly or not, whether we're going to act violent or not. In good conditions, we won't often, or maybe not in overt ways, but in difficult conditions, we might, and we might go unconscious, and we might not even recognize that happening because we can justify it. So being, in a sense, that identified with thought, that identified with mind, um, really puts you at risk of causing harm essentially. Greed, ignorance, delusion, selfishness, all those things. Yeah. Um, sounds moralistic in one way. If, if you say that too much, so I don't talk about it too much, but I think Buddhism is right. It does happen. Look around, you know, look around, look around and see what we do in this world. You know, how humans treat each other and treat animals and treat the environment and so forth, um, collectively and individually. So it does have an effect. It does have an effect to be unconscious. It does have an effect to conveniently overlook how, how we harm people, how we harm ourselves. Um, it's innocent. The, the, this act of going unconscious is innocent and it's habituated. There's a, there's a sort of habit force momentum to it, but it does cause harm in the relative sense of speaking. It does, it does cause harm and probably most or all of that harm is a side effect of of us being divided from ourself from our from our emotion body let's say or our, our energetic body and not being conscious of that and so emotion gets repressed it gets suppressed uh, and then it can come out in unconscious ways so there's a lot of mechanisms that go on underneath the underneath the surface that allow us to go unconscious in the ways i'm talking about um but the the spell of mind identification is what makes it even possible. If it weren't for that, we couldn't we couldn't seemingly divide ourselves such that we are unaware of our unaddressed emotional needs, our repressed emotions, our our misdirected anger, our resentment that we're not actually processing consciously, all of that, right? Our fear of helplessness. Um so to be completely 
mind identified in this way to, to be completely or almost completely identified with thought. Uh, not a good situation for you or for anyone else. And any, anyone here knows that that's what we're, that's really the starting point for most of us. Um, so we start to inquire, um, or we, we sort of surrender ourselves to an environment that can help us unbind from that. An environment might be watching YouTube videos, well, maybe reading a book that's transmitting. It may be an interacting one-on-one -on -one with somebody, and it may be putting yourself in a retreat environment. Um, meditation's good, but I think meditation is not as much a direct confrontation of that, that tendency to mind identified and the mind identified apparatus. Rather, it's, it's just a way to calm the body mind. And by calming the body, body mind, we probably have a better chance of accessing these these thoughts, beliefs, et cetera, in real time. Inquiry is really where the rubber meets the road, some form of inquiry. Um, or again, like surrendering yourself to a message, a, a conversation, an interaction, a video, a retreat that that is directly confronting the, the world of mind identification on the personal and social level continuously. And that's what this is doing. That's what I'm doing. That's what the retreat is for. Um, and that's a powerful, that's a powerful effect it has. Um, but to the degree we have the sense of a personal choice or a personal will or whatever it is, we can also apply inquiry. And um, initially, if you're going to do that, if you're going to apply inqu inquiry, I think initially the the money is in noticing one thought at a time just orienting to what is a thought what is the next thought and we can all do this right now we can simply orient attention to what is the next thought keep the aperture of attention alertness open for that next thought. Now you may notice various things happen, you may become very quiet. That's great. You may notice a narrative just start up. Well, I can't really do this very long. Every time I try, it doesn't work. Or um, another different kind of narrative. It could be any kind of narrative. Like every time I do this, I start to feel some kind of fear or, or uneasiness or a narrative of just about how you're feeling, what's happening, why you can or can't do this. Um, you may notice a thought that says, I don't understand how to do this. How, how can you not think or whatever the, the mind can say anything. Of course, the, the thoughts are, the mind is almost like a random thought generator. Um, but we're just kind of being alert to whatever that thought is a narrative thought. And if you notice a narrative thought, notice how, how, um, bound do you feel to that thought? How much does that thought feel like you? If the narrative is there, does it feel like your narrative? 
Does it feel like you're actually saying that in your own mind? If there's a wondering thought, are you one? Are you the one wondering? Does it feel like I'm wondering that, or does it feel like the thought just sort of arose out of nowhere that says, "I wonder about X, Y, Z"? Recognizing how much binding there is with a thought can be helpful, because you may notice that some thoughts feel much more like just a random thought. Other thoughts feel like my thought, like I'm the one doing the thinking. I'm the thinker. Noticing that difference can be helpful, that quality of experience. Because when we're um, purposefully interacting with our thoughts in this way, the, the point is to not create a thought. It's merely to notice thought. So anything that arises is essentially an involuntary thought. Now, if you are able to sort of recognize a thought as it's arising, you can ask yourself experientially, what did that thought arise in? Or what did that thought arise out of? Now, the point of asking that question, I wanna be really clear on this, is not to analyze. It's not to start thinking about neurophysiology. It's not, start to, it's not to start to think about the hard problem of consciousness or something. That's not what I'm t talking about at all. I'm actually saying, look closely at the experience. It would be like if I, we were you and I were standing looking at a pond and you noticed a wave come up out of the pond and then just drop back into the pond. And I said, look at what the wave seemed to appear out of. So I'm saying, look at the water. With con consciousness and thought, it's a little different than that in the sense that, is it actually distant? Is that sense of consciousness and thought, is that distant from you? Is there a vantage point from which that's being experienced? That's another thing that can be inquired into. If there is a vantage point from which that is being experienced, what is the nature of that, that appearance of a vantage point and the thought as a subject, uh, I'm sorry, as an object of experience? Is that anything but another thought? Is that not just one more thought that has arisen? Just look closely with curiosity and openness. This helps, um, it, it helps to do this with a wide open aperture. So wherever a thought stirs, wherever the mind starts to churn, construct a thought, it's already noticed because we're orienting directly to the next arising thought. And if you get lost in thought, analysis, any of it, just start again. It's very easy to just start again. What is the next thought? Now, if this stops the mind in a certain way, that feels intuitively natural, stay with that. Don't worry about there being another thought. There may not be. But if something starts to form, 
Notice it. Don't analyze it. Just notice it. Like, where is it forming? What is it forming out of? Experientially. Can you ask these questions and not think an answer? Because I don't want you to think an answer necessarily. Rather, investigate directly. Is there even anything to investigate with? Without creating another thought. Do you feel something reacting to this experience? There may be something like emotional, maybe like a rebellious mind that feels like it wants to argue with what we're doing or argue with me or, or it may feel like something that doesn't understand. I don't get this. It doesn't make sense. I'm confused by this, right? That's okay. You're just catching the thoughts a little bit later. Notice, oh, there's a thought that says I'm confused. I don't understand. Or this doesn't make sense. Start again. Observe the next thought arising wherever it is. Is where you're observing from and where you're observing actually two spaces or are they one space? If there's only one space, how can a thought arise? What if nothing arises here? Because nothing's apart from anything else to be recognized as arising. Also, if your body tenses up during any of this, any part of your body, which can happen, it may not at all, but it's good to be a little alert to it. If your jaw is tightening up or your face or your shoulder, any part of your body, just take a moment to relax it. Just relax the body. <clears throat> take a breath. Move your face, move your neck. Start again. Observe the next arising thought. Look for it. Turn your attention anywhere it needs to go. Allow your attention to turn itself or expand itself open, open, open. Where's the next thought? What is the next thought? It might start with a, a word like I it might just be a, like a fragment of a thought even, and just subside. Sometimes when we're just oriented directly to anything, any thought stirring, the thought doesn't even fully form. Sometimes you may just have a sort of thought form kind of 
start to move and then just stop because there's so much uh, sort of attention there already. That's okay. Just be with that experience if it happens. And don't overlook any space because this is already every space. When we talk about consciousness, it doesn't have boundaries. So just know as you do this, even if there are no thoughts, no formed or structured thoughts, there's something being learned here, but it's not informationally learned. It's learned through direct insight. You don't need to think about it. Just trust the experience. It's learned um, through the beingness of this or the, the knowingness. It's learned through the simplicity of it, actually. So trust that the learning is already here, even with no thoughts. This becomes self-confirmatory by merely participating in it, not requiring a thought that says, oh, this is it, <laughs> or this is not it, because those are only thoughts. If it's it right now, maybe it won't be it later, right? Thoughts are always subject to questioning and doubting and changing. So there's no need to confirm this with a thought because it's already the case. This alertness that has been paying attention the whole time doesn't require a thought to confirm it. It's just here. This is the nature of consciousness. It's something like a light that can shine onto anything to create the sense of it being an object. But it's not shining onto a thing, it's shining onto itself. But because consciousness by nature in this analogy is light, the light can also just shine within itself. It's just like a pure shining, a pure knowingness without an object of knowing, a pure, a pure light without anything specific to shine on. It's the shiningness that is illuminating, naturally illuminating. doesn't require thought. This is sometimes a big aha moment that you can remain purely conscious without entertaining thoughts. And it's really the first entry point to the middle way because it's not good or bad. It's not a big deal and it's not a little deal. It's just what it is. It's not full or empty because those are thoughts or concepts. So it's not any thought or concept, but it's what illuminates itself in a way that can make a thought or a concept seem to appear. But the knowingness isn't going anywhere. That illum the illuminating essence is already just it, just this. If there's a sense of you, it's what you are. If there's a sense of I, it's what you are. You can even sub subtract the I. Subtract the I because it's a thought. And just, just that being, beingness, knowingness. But keep the alertness. Is there another thought arising anywhere? Orient toward that. 
not like in a grasping way, not in an insisting way, not in a frustrated way, just in the simple way, simple and curious way. Where's the next thought arising? Where will consciousness stir? Even a little bit. The stirring can happen without losing the knowingness because you can't lose the knowingness. You can't lose the light of consciousness, not as consciousness. So let it just take you wherever it takes you. Keep that alertness and that wide open aperture and uh, sort of non-discernment, meaning you don't have to decide it's this or that. No need to create another thought or conclude anything. This beingness, this being um, or knowingness, pure knowing, requiring nothing known. Um, it doesn't have to do anything. It's not required to do anything. It's just on. And you may have a concern or a thought may arise saying, can I just stay here? Um, yes. It's quite possible. <laughs> you really haven't left here, but you can stay vigilant such that no thought is grasped anymore. No thought is entertained. No thought is pushed away. No thought is pulled toward.
becomes rather mm, juicy in a way. It's also rather neutral. The enjoyment of this has no opposite. It's important to say that because enjoyment in terms of the, the identified mind will always have an opposite. It will always have a beginning and an end. It will always have a magnitude, more enjoyment, less enjoyment, conditional enjoyment. And then when enjoyment ends, the fear of losing enjoyment, this has none of that. It is enjoyable in a way, um, for sure. But it doesn't, it's not a conditional kind of enjoyment. It's not something that's going to come and go. Um, it's, it's almost as if the neutrality and the enjoyment are the same thing. It's natural. There's a naturalness to it. And there's no engaging in the illusion of time. When we have a certain kind of enjoyment in the relative perception of the world that the mind constructs it's is uh, just a matter of time before we'll have the opposite right that that's that time bound looping of the mind this isn't time bound it's not it's it, we're really touching eternity we're touching timelessness with this and so there's not a risk to it it's not a risk of loss there's no gain and loss here so that's there's a kind of neutrality there as i said before it's 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 really starting that's your entry point to the middle way And this can be applied in, 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 its, in its bare simplicity as we're doing now. And it's a great approach and entry point when we're engaging this whole awakening process initially because it will discourage you or, well, it precludes analysis, you know? And that's one of the big pitfalls early on with spirituality is people want to analyze stuff, think about it more, learn more about it. But the whole first you know, insight, the importance of the first insight, uh, is, is very important. And it's, it's, it's to move beyond conceptuality essentially. So this is a very powerful practice if it resonates with you. Um, well, even if it doesn't, but if, you know, if it doesn't resonate with you, you might not do it, but it, it's, it's a powerful practice. It's a powerful orientation and it does lead to an important insight. When I say lead to the insight, the insight is already here, but for some reason, the, the I don't know, it's like a magnet, it, the tendency toward mind identification, that, that identified mind process, the looping mind, it has like a magnetic pull for a while. The, but the more you touch into this, the more you remain with this, um, the less strong that pull of the magnet is. Uh, and we do disidentify from that those thought loops, the loop of coming and going, becoming, gaining, losing, moving through time. Uh, and so we start to stabilize here and it tends to deepen itself. It tends to lead to deeper insight. But the beauty of it is you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to manage that because if you're thinking about deeper insights while this is occurring, 
you know, okay, those are thoughts. Just go back to the, the first part. Reorient yourself in the way we described here or we, we practiced. And then you won't be, re you won't be orienting to your idea of deeper insights or your idea of deeper stages because that's not helpful. They do occur, but they don't occur in the way the mind thinks about it at all. They occur right here. They occur, they occur through the lens of this, of presence. And your first conduit to presence is consciousness. So this can be applied in its bare, um, practice as we've been doing. It can also be, a, this is something to hold lightly if it doesn't necessarily resonate, just stay with this practice. But it can also apply, I think, later on in, in situations where there's, there's vasanas, sticky um, complexes around emotion or your history or early childhood um, uh, fixations or traumas, things like that. It can also be applied in those spaces as well. Um, at least with the thought component, the consciousness component, which really does drive a lot of rumination, a lot of avoidance, a lot of bypassing, a lot of repression that is driven by these fixations in consciousness. So you can address a big component of even deeper fixations and things that occur that you may see later on when you're really in the depth of the shadow by applying this exact practice, but applying it in a, in a little bit more of an intentional way around a certain thought form a certain, even, even a visual image of something, someone, some situation that just keeps coming back over and over and over. You can, you can sort of apply this to that as well. Keeping all of the openness, the open aperture so that anything is allowed, any thought is noticed, but sort of di directing it initially to this, whatever this is that just keeps coming back about, you know, it's always a situation. It's always a mem it's a memory essentially, but often that's that has a lot of baggage to it. It has a lot of momentum to it. It has a lot of other areas of your life that are tied into it. And it has a, a, a lot of emotional component to it. There are things to do in the emotion body as well, you know, and I, that's not this talk necessarily. And I do talk about that frequently. So that is going to be part of it usually with some very sticky fixation or vasana or complex or whatever you want to call it. But this is an important part of it as well. I think it's very, it's very valuable because you can find a neutrality in regard to anything in consciousness because consciousness is essentially neutral. It's primarily neutral. It's fundamentally neutral. So you can always find the neutrality through this, this approach, this practice, this orientation, um, in, in that case, if that's what you want to work with, I would start by doing it in general, like we did here as a sort of general orientation to any thought that's arising. Um, and when that starts to clarify, that aperture is open. You can feel that expansiveness, the oceanic nature of consciousness. Then you can sort of bring it to anything that's been um, stirring in the ways I was discuss discussing, like a fixation, a vasana, something heavy, something that keeps coming back, something you keep ruminating on. You can bring it to that, not in, in any way of analysis, but into, into any like symbolic thought around that. And often that's, you'll find it, you'll find like one symbolic thought that starts a whole, whole train of thought, a whole train of analysis and then emotional stuff and all of it. Um, but just bring it to that and just hold it there in that same exact way where consciousness actually slows down or the tendency to bind into thought slows down and consciousness becomes much more neutral.
or we recognize the neutrality of consciousness as its nature. And um, I found that can be helpful in those situations as well as part of the part of the um, approach. One other thing I thought to um, bring up about this is when you <clears throat> when you uh, inquire in this way or you investigate consciousness in the way we're discussing the initial descriptions I was giving, uh, you may find you you may not. And I don't want to put this out there as like a litmus test. Like, I don't want you to say, oh, it's not, it's not, that's not happening. So I haven't figured it out because it may not be this way for you. <clears throat> but, uh, one thing you may find is that when this clarifies, when you are able to move your attention, um, to its source and rest there and open the aperture and maybe even ask the question, is there a thought arising anywhere here and just orient to anything that may be arising anywhere or stirring. Um, once that, once you sort of settle with that and it starts to clarify what that actually that experience is or that practice. Um, first of all, you may notice that oceanic nature, that sort of infinite and eternal experience. Um, and you may notice sort of, uh, waves, waves of conscious consciousness may start to feel like it has a rhythm to it and may feel wave-like again don't try to paste this on top of your experience it doesn't have to do that but sometimes it does um and that's totally normal if you experience that that's okay of course um there's no need to break that down or analyze what the waves are or try to calm waves or anything like that you just may notice it actually starts to feel rather wave-like or almost like there's a circuit in consciousness that's not forming thoughts at all and it feels completely holistic. It feels oceanic in and of itself. There's just a sort of rhythm to consciousness. You may notice that you may not, it may come and go too. But if that's the case, it's totally fine. It's just part of the deal. Just keep that aperture open, keep the orientation to any thought forming as a, as a general curiosity in, in any direction and just stop there and rest with it. And let me know how that goes. Okay. That's the talk for the day. <laughs>